Scottish Mortgage seeks out lateral thinkers like academics, authors and experts in the industry to shape our investment ideas. Not the usual suspects and narrow mindset of financial analysts and investment industry commentators. That way, we continue to build a portfolio that reflects real-world progress, not financial world noise. Scottish Mortgage is managed by Bailey Gifford. A key information document is available by visiting baileygifford.com. As with any investment, capital is at risk. In the build-up to the year 2000, fears spread around the world that the new millennium would crash computers and lead to the breakdown of modern civilization. Ten years ago, in the run-up to the 31st of December 2012, when the FCA's RDR rules came into force, there were fears, although not quite as fantastical as the Y2K bug, that the reforms could lead to a breakdown in the advice market, with advisors' income streams being blocked and systems unable to cope with the new rules. Most of these fears, just like those over the new millennium, were unfounded. But the regulators' reforms did have a profound impact on the advice market. Now, 10 years on, we look back at the history of RDR. In this three-part series, we speak to the key players involved at advice firms, the FCA, and in the wider industry to dig deep into the biggest ever change to the UK advice market. I'm Jack Gilbert. And I'm Charles Wormsley. And this is the story of RDR, episode two, The Impact. Before we talk about the impact RDR had on the advice market, let's take a step back and remind ourselves what the new rules actually meant. Firstly, RDR aimed to improve the professionalism of the advice market. It required advisors to attain a higher level of qualification. Secondly, RDR was designed to remove advisor bias when selecting investments, so commission payments were banned on funds, and advisors had to separate out an advice fee, a platform fee, and a fund fee for their clients. This meant some big changes for those who hadn't already moved to a new model approach. One of the people working with advisors on getting ready for the new changes was Phil Young, a compliance consultant at Zero Support. I was working with a load of firms um, on this when I was at 360 and running that business. Um, they, the firms that we were dealing with were concerned, I think, first of all, concerned about qualifications and getting through that, organising who was going to do what going further forward. There's a bit of a fear factor around getting those qualifications done and almost assumptions that more of the industry wouldn't be able to get through them than, than actually proved to be the case. Um, the other issue was just around business models and how to charge and how to make money. You know, the, the idea was thrown out early on about, um, about how charging would come through um, and the fact that commission was going to go. And there was an awful lot of speculation around what that would mean, various different iterative business models, ideas about it, some, some of them more extreme than actually came through in the back end of it all. Um, and, and certainly, I think an anticipation that it was going to be an awful lot harder for most firms than proved to be the case. Um, people were worried, people were a bit concerned about the operational impact as we got close to the, to the date, whether people were going to get paid, um, all those sorts of issues, that were quite practical stuff um, came to the fore as the actual sort of D-Day, if you like, um, 
uh, was more and more imminent. As well as fears that consumers would not pay for advice, one of the big concerns was over the new requirements for advisors to call themselves independent. To class themselves as independent, advisors would now have to ensure they cover the full range of retail investment products. Those who did not would have to become restricted, and the previous titles of tied and multi-tied would be dropped. Keith Richards was distribution director for Tenant at the time. He was helping to get advisors in his network ready for RDR. We welcomed the change back to independence or the retention of independence, but this new title of restricted became a bit of a concern for us, not least because uh, many were seeing that the new requirements to, to retain independence post RDR were just too onerous. And as a result of that, there, there were widespread predictions that the vast majority of IFAs currently in the market would have no option but to continue under a restricted advice status. However, once again, these fears that many small advice firms would have to become restricted were overblown. It was only the biggest provider-owned advice groups and the other large firms like SJP that went restricted. And that tag hasn't done its business any harm. It did turn out subsequently that I think we'd all over-analysed the, re- the regulatory requirements and actually it turned out that it wasn't quite as onerous to retain independence. There, there were a number of things we had to do. And Tenet was one of the first largest advice groups to uh, publicly state in the market that it was going to retain an independent or its default position was going to retain independent status. With any big change, Brexit or COVID, for example, small businesses always worry about going bust. RDR was no different, particularly with so many advisors running their own small firms. Here is Phil Young. They were worried about going bust. And they were, basically, it was a cash flow issue. You know, people were concerned that they were going to be loss making for, you know, a six month, maybe a 12 month period of time. And yeah, most most firms would have held a minimal amount of capital adequacy, you know, 10 grand or whatever it was at that point in time. And as with most small businesses, you're, you're not really holding a lot of ca- extra surplus cash in the business because you don't really need to. Um, so I think there was, there was a bit of panic around that and, and a bit of an emphasis on modelling it out. Um, a lot of the bigger platforms out there were trying to provide some support and guidance for firms on it. But I think... I think most people intuitively felt the way through this and managed to manage to change what they were doing and how they were charging clients over and transition it over maybe a you know 18 month, maybe even a two-year period. So that just avoided too many, um, too many big problems. So if advisors did not see their livelihoods dry up when RGR came into force, like so many were predicting, what was the actual impact? Well, according to the FCA statistics, the reforms had a relatively modest impact on advisor numbers. The number, not including bank advisors, increased from 20,453 on the 31st of December 2012 to 21,881 on the 10th of January 2014. But it should be noted that in the run-up to RDR, many advisors did leave the market with a drop of around 3,300 
between the summer of 2012 and the end of that year. One area which did see a big change was in banks' advice forces, which back then made up a substantial portion of the market. Jackie Leeper, now CEO of Lloyd's Owned Embark, was helping to run Scottish Widows' intermediary and workplace pension business at the time. If I take the sort of Lloyd's banking group side, we had at that time probably about a thousand advisors in, in our branches that supported customers around investments and pensions. And the thing about that was it was really mainly mass market customers. So these were customers who were probably quite new to investing at the early part of their journey and they got that support in branches from someone who was qualified and, and could provide that support to them quite often face-to-face actually. Um, so a pretty good service. Overnight, we withdrew from the investment side of that because we just couldn't really see that those customers were able to pay up front because obviously that was the significant change that RDR brought in, that customers were going to have to find the money, pay the fees up front to get that support. And if you think about those customers, and when I talk about mass market customers, I'm talking about people with investable assets of under 100,000, but actually the majority of those customers would have been significantly sort of lower down that that scale. Um, And therefore, if they're not able to afford to pay it, um, nobody was going to be using the service. Um, and and actually what, what we've seen subsequently is probably quite a big gap created for those particular customers. It wasn't just Lloyd's pulling out of advice. All the major banks did the same. And according to the FCA, bank advisor numbers fell by 23% from August 2013 to January 2014, from 4,604 to 3,556. Many of these bank advisors ended up training as financial planners and can be found at NMA top 100 firms today. Others went into the mortgage and protection market while some retired. The FCA and its then CEO, Martin Wheatley, who came in post-financial crisis, would have been delighted to see advisor numbers remain stable. But the regulator also had the task of policing its landmark reforms after 31st December 2012. Although commission was banned, providers and some large advice groups sought ways to get around the new rules. We saw the emergence of marketing packages where big advice firms and networks would ask product providers to pay, in some case millions of pounds, for services such as advisor training, hospitality, or events, or even developing IT systems. In return, the providers would appear on networks panels or feature in advisor roadshow presentations. Just like commission, the more providers paid advisors, the more of their funds they would sell through these panels. It was pay to play. How would the FCA respond to these deals? Here is Phil Young again. What kept followed on after RDR was a real stiffening of the inducement rules. They didn't change the rules, but they actually started to enforce them in, in much more, more um, aggressive way than ever before. At that point in time, it allowed... Yeah, commission was just a way of arguably being able to rent um, an advisor's uh, interest levels in your, in your products or your services, if you like, 
um, and marketing packages were also part of that as well. Yeah, we saw on the build-up towards um, RDR uh, an explosion in interest in doing multi-tie deals, uh, which were replacing commission with um, with a you know with a fixed fee marketing package. If you like, it was just a different way of influencing. Uh, where business went the regulator spotted that to be fair to them reasonably early on and and could see that marketing packages was were just the, a different way an alternative way to influence the direction of travel of advice um, um it was just a different way of creating bias in the marketplace and when those packages which originally started off as you know a, a little bit of money to support some of the events around the country that we were running or something like that once they got to the point where they were in the in the millions of pounds that people were handing over to be part of a multi-tie panel, um, they clamped down on it. And I think the um, the fine that, that Sesame got at that point in time was probably the, the high watermark had, had been and gone at that point in time. Thanks for listening to the second episode of the story of RDR. Join us next week when we will look at the advice market today and ask if the reforms were a success. This is a CityWire studio production, written and narrated by Jack Gilbert and Charles Wormsley, and produced by Neve Doyle. Scottish Mortgage seeks out lateral thinkers like academics, authors and experts in the industry to shape our investment ideas. Not the usual suspects and narrow mindset of financial analysts and investment industry commentators. That way, we continue to build a portfolio that reflects real-world progress, not financial world noise. Scottish Mortgage is managed by Bailey Gifford. A key information document is available by visiting baileygifford.com. As with any investment, capital is at risk.